0: Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Dan. How
1: are you? Old hot Mike Dan again. I don't know why it comes across that way. <laughs> now it doesn't. Now you sound great. It's just the first words out of your mouth are always like...
0: Do you think it's a time thing? Should I just sit and wait and not say anything?
1: No, I like you saying hi, John, first. Okay. Have I told you about the, every time I pick up the phone with my mom... It's the same thing. If I don't hold the phone away from my ear, yeah. <laughs> the first words out of her mouth just pierce like an ice pick. And then the rest of the conversation is, uh,
0: but yeah, I thought we normal, had resolved
1: but... that issue. I don't know, Dan. I don't know. It seems like a technological thing. Mm. What are you drinking? How are you? Well, I'm having a little coffee. It's the only real thing I drink.
0: I mean, real isn't like something that actually affects you in a, a certain way.
1: No, no, no. The two things I drink are water and coffee. I don't really drink anything else. Yeah. I don't drink pop or juice. Right. When I get sick, I drink Gatorade. But in a day, I drink probably five pints of of uh, water and four pints of coffee. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, that seems like a lot of coffee. I was just reading something yesterday that said men who have more than 3 or more shots of espresso not regular coffee just espresso in a day uh reduce their chance of getting prostate cancer by 50% mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's accurate or not but I read it
1: and the latest the latest talk is that um you cannot drink too much coffee can you believe that and that's what There's we've not- always wanted to hear yeah, there's no there's no such thing as too much coffee from a health standpoint.
0: I bet that um, made you pretty happy to learn that.
1: It did make me happy. Although there is too much coffee from a jittery leg at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, standpoint. you don't want that.
0: But you you have told yeah. me many times that you you use coffee that you're unaffected by coffee until you hit a certain point, and then you're then then it will have effects on you.
1: Uh, well, or keep you um,
0: awake or
1: I was unaffected by coffee until I reached a certain age. That's what I must be remembering. Yeah. And, uh, and now, you know, I've lost a lot of my sheen of invincibility that I carried around when I was young. I can't repel bullets anymore. I can't repel mind bullets anymore. I'm not immune to the affections of, of, uh, women anymore. I'm. I'm devastated by everything now. What about
0: a cold brew coffee? Is that anything you've ever tried or like?
1: I have, you know, I don't like sour coffee. Sure. The fashion, the fashion right now, at least, is for sour coffee. And I, I prefer to just have coffee and not, not monkey around with it, not have any apparatus not have to in fact i just went after years of using a gold filter in my coffee maker oh, yeah. which i despised i fought it i hated this thing i was at the grocery store the other day and i was like there's absolutely no reason why i shouldn't just buy some of these like unbleached paper filters and go back to being a normal joe and i did i bought them now i'm making coffee the coffee's better i'm better it was a simple fix
0: that's very good, yeah. Very I'm looking
1: good. for some simple fixes, Dan, in my life right now.
0: What? In what other areas of your life are you are you looking for this?
1: Oh, it's all upside down. Everything's upside down right now. My whole operation. What happened? Well, everything, 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 everything. It's uh, you know, my mom's selling her house. Oh, really? She's, She's single-mindedly uh, decided to sell it, and so, sort of with a wave of her hand, she's like, "Well, you know, you've got not just twenty years of stuff in the basement of my house from living here for twenty years. You know, like it's got that was where the long winters practiced. Right, that's a you legend, know. legendary
0: house. This should be this is this house mm-hmm. should be some kind of historical, you know, like it should be one of those things that you can't sell. You should never be allowed yeah, well, to sell it."
1: If someone wants to come along and buy it and turn it into something, they're more than welcome to. But my mom is going to sell the shit out of it. And so she said, you know, you in your house, which is already problematically full of stuff that you need to get rid of, you now have to absorb the, you know, the contents of one third of my house, including like a PA and mic stands and, you know, 25 guitars and amps and and uh so and also she's like uh, uh, 10 years ago she and I were out shopping in the like the junk stores of Renton, Washington. Right. Which we we used to like to do. We'd go look at old old uh rusty tools and and chipped crystal doorknobs and uh just all the kind of crap that you find in in those what they call what antique stores in in smaller towns uh farm implements and and stained movie posters and this type of thing And we were down in the basement of one of these places down in renton and here's a couch that's covered with stuff and my mom says look at that couch and i'm you know i was moving into a new house i got the couch I loved the couch. Mm-hmm. It's a floral couch. One of those long, low couches that I suppose you would call mid-century modern, although okay. those were those words come off my lips now just stained with derision. Oh my god. But this thing is like not not one of these clean line not not one of these uh gray wool upholstered things that that you'll find now at a at a bed breakfast and beyond or whatever the fuck you buy your furniture at. Okay. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's got this beautiful sort of elaborate floral pattern. Well, so it sat in my house for about six or seven years, not sat. It was, it was the center of the living room. And my mom was niggling me about it all the time. You know, I found that couch. She would say, I'm like, what are you talking about? We were both in the basement of this dusty place. You just point, you just saw it. You didn't find it. I bought it. She was like, but I saw it first. Like you saw it first. So she was on me all the time. That couch would be perfect in my house. You have a couch. I would say, I don't have a couch. I bought this couch for my house. So finally she nagged me and nagged me. And I was like, fine, you can have the couch. So she took my couch. And now unceremoniously, she's selling her house. She's like, uh, come get your couch. Come get your couch. Come get 25 now it's yours. guitars. Yeah. She wants it gone. So now it's mine. So now right. I've got, I replaced it. I had a couch. So now I got to get rid of my couch. So, you know, just one thing after another. So now my house, you can't even walk around it. See,
0: I'm getting rid of a couch too. Oh yeah. yeah Are you offering it to me? I mean, if you want to, it's an Ikea couch. So yeah, sure. You're going to have it.
1: No, I don't want it Dan. All right. Uh, you put it out on the put it out on the sidewalk in front of your cul-de-sac with a free sign.
0: It was in our old office, and it uh, there's no room anymore for it. and got to get rid of it.
1: Put a free sign on it. Put it outside. It'll be gone in a half an hour. Yeah, I, that's amazing, isn't it? It's wonderful. Love it. Just throw it in. Throw it into the river.
0: Now who is who is it That comes and gets it. I've re- hardly ever seen these people. There are these guys that drive around my neighborhood, and they uh, they have. What for lack of a better term I would call like a junk junk truck, yeah. Where like it's a pickup truck that has that they have sort of used, you know, you know, like if you ever worked in a grocery store or something and you've seen like a pallet come in with stuff on top of it. And the pallet. Yeah, and and so like the pallet, it has like the metal, I mean not metal, wooden slats going one way and then going the other way. They've taken these and used crafted from these like sides so that they can extend how much stuff can be put in the back of their pickup truck by about four feet high. Mm -hmm. So they got those on either side, and then they've got some wire mesh that's sort of holding things in. And I think they just drive around and load stuff. Whatever they find into it, they're just always circling neighborhoods, always circling.
1: Well, those guys also, you can hire them, and I hire them all the time, the junk men. How do you find because who they, they are? A lot of times they will have hand-painted signs on the side of their truck. But, uh, you know, if you pull up next to one of them at a stoplight, you can go, hey, you want to make a 100 bucks oh. And they'll say, yeah. And then whatever job you have to do, even if it's like, will you help me carry this couch up to the second story of my house? It's a heavy couch. I mean, you're not going to give them a hundred bucks for that job, but you know, it's uh, there are a lot of people out there that are resourceful and rather than sit and sweat it. I mean, I think these days with the, uh, with the internet people are trying to use task, um, rabbits and yeah. And whatnot, but there's a whole, Uh, There's a whole sub economy like a like a, uh, a, a like a separate economy that runs beneath the the normal economy of people that are that are making a living kind of by hook or by crook. And they recognize when they go past something that somebody has thrown on the side of the road, they recognize that it has value, some value. And. So you say like, ah, this thing, you know, this old broken thing, I'm going to put it out for the garbage and they drive by and they go, you know, I know how to fix lawnmowers or even the scrap metal value of that. Mm -hmm. Like Like the scrap metal value of something, let's say you have a big junky thing and it's, it's worth the, the metal in it alone is worth $14. Right. Well, well that's not worth it to you to do, to deal with. But this guy drives around town all day and he picks up every one of those $14 things that he finds. And at the end of the day, he's got a truck that has $114 worth of metal in it. So it's worth it. You know, he's like, it's just, he's making $14 an hour, basically picking up old refrigerators and, and, um, you know, it's a way that you make a living kind of, off of the, off of the edge of, of the, the normal economy. And I support those guys, you know, if I, and I, my mom does too, right? I mean, she's always going down to the lows and picking up two guys to go do something for her. And she's got this whole system. She pulls up, you know, and a bunch of guys crowd around her car and she's like, all right, you know, who's it going to be? And they all kind of vie. For the job and she picks a couple of them and she's like, all right, stand up against the car. And she takes their picture and she says, no, I'm texting this picture to my son. So he knows who you are. So you'd better behave yourselves. Nice. And they're all like, yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And then they go off and they do some. And then I, you know, I'm sitting at home and my phone buzzes and I've got a picture of two day laborers standing out in front of the Lowe's. Right. But, you know, she always pays them well. She's not somebody that's going to sit and uh, negotiate with, you know, if somebody's working out on the the side of the hardware store for 50 bucks a time and you need them to do a job and you sit and you know, like how much 20, no 20, you know, I'll pay you 14. You're just being a dick, you know, everything, anytime you pick somebody up, you should give them 50 bucks to do anything. And if they, you know, if they have to go to a third location with you, yeah, you know, 75 bucks or whatever, like it's, um, it's not paying it forward. They're doing work. It's just that how many jobs are they going to get in a day? You know, maybe they get three, but they're not getting rich doing that.
0: I mean, do you think that they're expecting the haggling though? Because I, a lot of the time I think people think that the first price is always sort of like the haggle price.
1: Well, everybody, you know, what I'm saying, like, it it, just...
0: like, like, if if you were to somebody selling something, you always get the impression that the thing that they're selling is maybe it's marked up a little because they know you're going to oh, How much is that guitar? Oh, it's a thousand bucks. I'll give you seven fifty for it. All right, how about eight hundred bucks and call it a deal? You know, they they expect there to be some kind of haggling, but maybe it's because like if if they're in that situation and there's the people and they're thinking. I, I need someone to help me paint this fence. They're like, oh, I'll paint it for a hundred bucks. Well, oh, how about 80 bucks? You feel like you're supposed like you're trained to do that.
1: Yeah, I understand. I understand the the art of haggling, but I don't particularly I'm not a haggler, right? I don't it's not interesting to me. And I think haggling for the most part, it's a big part of a lot of cultures. It's a big I think it's a big part of some families, right? You're yeah. if you're Parents are hagglers, then you learn to be hagglers. But for me, it's much more important that you have a basic idea of what the value of a thing is. Right? Like I know what a value of what the value of a guitar that I'm gonna buy is. I know what it's worth. And if the person says that the price is way more Mm -hmm. than what it's worth, I'll say, well, it's not worth that. It's worth this. And if they go, well, you know, split the difference. Maybe I'll go that, uh, maybe I'll haggle that far once, you know. That's a thousand dollar guitar. Oh, well, I want fifteen hundred bucks for it. Well, it's not worth fifteen hundred bucks, but you know, I'll give me twelve hundred bucks. Thirteen. All right, fine. Right. You know, like I'll, I'll do that. But back and forth, or somebody saying like, no way, you don't, you know, like I won't, I'm not going to you budge or, any of that kind of like sport haggling. I'm just out. I don't want your thing. I don't want to deal with you. I know what the I know what a thing is worth.
0: John, we gotta uh we gotta thank a sponsor here. It's Blue Apron. Hey, blue apron. Blue apron. The blue apron is the number one fresh ingredient in recipe delivery service in the country. They make it much easier and much more fun to cook at home. A lot of us don't mind cooking. A lot of us even maybe like cooking or think we might like it, but we don't know what we want to make and we don't know the right ingredients to get and we don't know how much of the ingredients to get and we don't know if there's going to be a good recipe. So we wind up just eating, you know, macaroni and cheese right out of the pot or we pick up some food that's maybe not that healthy for us and Blue Apron wants to change all of this, what their goal is and what they do and they do pretty well is it for less than $10 per person per meal, they're going to deliver really great recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients fresh to your door so that you can make delicious home-cooked meals and they change it up. So not only is it affordable, but like every time they send you something, it's different. They don't even repeat the recipes within the space of a year. So you're never going to get bored. And is that right? That's what they say, right? I'm reading reading the words right here.
1: They never repeat a recipe in within the space a, of a year?
0: Within a year. you That's
1: never, incredible. Never have the same thing.
0: And if, wow. you got, if you got dietary restrictions, you can still work within it. You tell them what they are and they have meals cut out for all the different stuff. I've had some really good like paleo style meals that have been pretty awesome. And John, you had a warning for people. And the warning was, see, for me, when I get this thing, it'll say like, this is a meal for two people. I'll have this meal. And I'll share it with a loved one, and we'll both say, that was a wonderful meal. John, however, will eat the meal, the whole thing, the two-person meal. That's one meal for you. Yeah. So if you're, how tall are you? 6'3". Six six, see, if, I feel like if you're 6'2 or, or more, it might be just one big meal for you.
1: Uh, yeah, or is well, it just you? Mean, you, are you could, just
0: a big eater? Do you only eat one meal a day? And maybe that's why it wound up being a, a meal.
1: I do eat one and a half meals a day. So that's why. Um, I, yeah, I eat a I I eat a big meal, but also, you know, there are a lot of people in the five, seven, five, eight range that are, you know, that weigh in the 240 to 340 range right, right. that are probably also consuming as many calories as I do. Um, but I find that, the you know, I find that the portions are aspirational in that if I were to eat, <laughs> if I were to eat only one portion, it would actually be plenty satisfying, right? It's not that the portions are small. Oh, the you portion, just keep going. Yeah. the, por- the a, a, a single portion would be, would be plenty of food and it would probably be a healthy portion for me. Um, What ends up happening is I'm, I'm alone. I make the meal. I should put half of it in the refrigerator to eat later, but it's fresh. It looks good. I eat the, I eat half of it and then I just keep nibbling. And then pretty soon I've eaten the whole thing. That, that happens. That happens occasionally.
0: Well, I think, you know, I think you can do it both ways. I look at this as some people would say, That this is a bug, I say it's a feature. This can be Mm -hmm. a meal for two people, or it could even just be an aspirational meal for one person. Mm -hmm. This is their goal: is to get you the good stuff and get you to to cook and take all these other little details. How much should we get? What should we make? I'm bored of this. I don't want to eat the same thing again. They fix all of that and they make it fun. And you can cook at home, and you can have great meals at home. You can cook with your family. It's it's great fun. Involve your kids in it, that's what I do. And then your kids will be, like Merlin said the other day, uh, he said that he finds that if his daughter helps cook, it's she's more willing to try the food. My kids are always like, I don't want I don't like it. I don't want to try it. When they're helping cook, they want to try it out. So there you go. Do this with blue apron. Yeah. Blue blue apron dot com slash roadwork. If you go there, you will get your first three meals for free with free shipping. Pretty great deal. Pretty good way to start out. Blueapron.com dot slash roadwork.
1: Uh, there was a there was a study I read recently, and I forget exactly where I read it. That, um, oh oh, it was a magazine article about how uh, increasingly now on the internet, depending on who you are, what your shopping history is, and where you're logging in from, you're going to start seeing different prices. Yeah for the same item. Right. Right are you familiar with I'm this very new concept? With that, yeah. And so this article I was reading was kind of breaking down the history of of price and saying like up until the 20th century the the whole idea of a price tag or of anything having a a firm price was just alien. Every single thing you transacted with somebody you haggled. That was the that was how you bought things. But the firm price came into came into the the consciousness, I guess, of people post industrial revolution, sometime in the late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And it, yeah, and it was meant to, you know, it was meant to give you a kind of census of of security. What what was happening was that the merchant, the seller, was potentially going to lose the profit of of those instances where they could really rip somebody off, Mm -hmm. they were sacrificing that, that extra profit of selling it to a rich person and getting a, you know, like selling it for three times what it was worth. But in exchange, you know, the uh, commerce was sort of, it felt regulated. It felt, um, it was sort of dependable and they could build in a small profit on everything. And they knew kind of uh, it, it made everything more, more regular. Right. And, and then you, you get, you get the manipulators, the car salesman or whatnot that talk about a list price, Right. but, but then you're going to get deals. Well, the, w- one of the interesting things about the study was that although people liked a, a fixed price, there was still a very important component of it, which was that they felt that they'd gotten a better deal than other people, you know, that they had won the, the sale. That within the context of a sale, there's something innate in us that makes it feel like a competition and that you need to win it. And a lot of us, I guess, in the modern age feel like, well, we, if we get a good thing for a price that doesn't feel, but that's what the whole business of sales, 20% off. uh, That was the initial appeal of the internet. You got all this stuff cheaper than stores. And then you get into situations where everything's 50% off all the time. And you realize it's, it only cost 14 cents to get made in China. Like it's the, it's in a way the pathology of our age, this like discount, discount, discount. And, and I think it's driven by this desire to beat the other guy and not just beat the merchant, but beat the other person. That's also trying to get that thing. Get it. Oh, right. Exactly you got it for 30 cents less than that person. So you beat him too. And for me over the years, like learning how to learning how to conquer that, because I feel like that is a, that is a bitterness and, and a kind of obsession and a thing that soaks you people like getting, getting furious over insignificant amounts of money And obsessed with with insignificant, just insignificant layers of a deal. And I used to be very money uh, fixated when I was a kid and when I was in my 20s. I was was afraid of getting ripped off. I would, you know, I would deny myself things if I felt like it was a dollar more than I should. And I tried to, I tried to haggle with people. And I would almost always walk out without buying the thing because I felt like that last, when I would say 125, and they'd say 130, and I would say 125.5, and they would say 130, and I would say, fuck you, you should have come down. You know, that's not how haggling works or whatever. And I would storm out. And then at some point, (laughs) at some point, I felt like, oh, right, money isn't real. And I say this all the time, and it's I think cer- certain people who are in the same sort of place in their life, I think get that. There are a lot of people for whom money still is really real, and it's you know, it's not a question of whether you have the privilege to say money isn't real. Money isn't real. it just isn't. and your relationship to money is up to you like we need we need to come up with a way to provide for ourselves and to keep the power on and to keep food in our mouths and our kids mouths. But you see all the time people, you know, like these junk men, right? They are finding a way and to them, you know, money is, is a game more than it's real. Like they see a a pile of rusty metal on the road and they see, they see value And it's a, it's a game. It's a joke to them. This is garbage to other people, but they're going to turn this into money somehow. And so the way that we obsess about it, it just isn't real. And for me, the liberation of that, it allowed me to become a good tipper. It allowed me to be free of this haggle monster where it's like, oh, did you just beat me in that fucking deal by a dollar? You know what? here's the dollar. Like, let me get, let me put it in your fucking G string. If it makes you happy. Like, did you beat me? Great. Like you won the dollar or the yeah. $20 or the hundred dollars, you know? And that's why I, I, I think I said uh, a few months ago that, that, that I always budget a hundred extra dollars just for bullshit, just for the, just for the extra fee that hurts decides, to put on your car rental because you're an hour late or just for the little, you know, just for Verizon deciding that you violated the terms of your contract. All this like the, the, the way that the corporate world, the way that the airlines have decided that the way they're going to profit and become multi-million dollar companies is by these tiny little shitty dollar transactions where everybody feels awful. Where it's like, Oh, you want to, you want a pillow. That's another $3. And it's like, Oh my God, let me put it in your G string. You assholes, United <laughs> Airlines, $3. <$3." laughs> but they're, but they're, you know, somebody up the chain is like, well, at the, at a scale, you know, that's going to make us an extra $2 million a year at our bottom line. It's like, great up yours. And, and, we've arrived at a place where that is the sickness. It's the sickness of capitalism at the high level. And it's a sickness of capitalism as it's, as it, and it's not like capitalism on high because I feel like it's in us. It's in every person. If you have ever tried to do some kind of negotiation with a, with a Marxist, you're going to find that they are just as shitty at, you know, they're just (laughs) as shitty Negotiators (laughs) Negotiators <laughs> negotiating
0: trying, with a mar with a Marxist. I mean, who hasn't done you know,
1: that? They're trying to beat you too because it's in their it's in our bones somehow. But it's a thing that we, and that's why, that's why religion was so adamant. So many religions are so adamant about generosity. You know that the the positive effect of religion, I think, on on the development of humanity has always been. That religion, in in a lot of ways, tries to counter our worst impulses. Religion has all these tenets that say, give unto others, don't murder, don't, you know, don't, uh, don't covet. And these things aren't, the reason that they, that religions need to say those things is because we have the opposite impulse. And in this modern life where we've, we've lost a lot of that, the basic structure of those religious ideas and we haven't replaced them with a similar kind of like, what's the secular version of don't covet. I mean there, if you are trying to practice Buddhism, I mean, but that's a religion, right? There are, there are lots of sort of hippy dippy versions of don't covet right but there's no there's no universally accepted notion that the idea of don't covet did not come from god it's a good idea coveting is awful it does awful things to you it creates awful structures in the world it makes you a bad friend it makes you a bad parent Like covetousness is an ugly animal thing. And we don't need God to tell us, don't covet. It's hard to remember. And religion is, I guess, a way that every Sunday you go sit on a hard stool and somebody drills it into your head. Remember, don't covet. But uh, don't covet, don't steal, don't, you know, these like basic ideas. That are, that are counter to our natures. Well, without that reminder all the time, we have all this technology now, we have all this insulation against our against the appearance of being animals. You know, we don't walk around covered in dirt and sweat and blood. We say all the time, we're, we're, we're so impressed with how civilized we are. Mm-hmm. And, and that insulation from appearing to be gross has caused us to be in this state where we've forgotten not to covet, not to steal, not to, um, you know, not to break the, the basic, basic rules that, that are are, are doing damage to ourselves. Like we're hurting ourselves and we're, and we have now built a built a culture where, the, you know, uh, some of our fundamental, um, the things we need the most are being kind of pervade to us, uh, appealing to our basest instincts. I mean, the 50% off sale, it, every time there is a 50% off sale, it's tickling the part of you that is the worst.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's, it brings out the worst in people.
1: Well, and it, and it, and it makes you structure your own life and it makes you think of the world and your relationship to it in a, in a, in a small way. Every time you get on an airplane and you're sitting there and they're calling the five different levels of privilege above the first level of low privilege And then there are four levels of lower privilege below that. It's like the, it's the ultimate like recapitulation of a caste system that we have, that we are so proud of ourselves for having eliminated in South Africa or in the United States or in India. You know, we're so civilized now that we don't have these, uh, you know, we live in a classless society, except we're voluntarily submitting to this re, uh, you know, reapplication of that same base instinct to things that, that affect us every day. You walk in, you know, like do you shop in the fancy grocery store and it's not about money exactly. It's about, it's that we have found that, 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 that scratches an itch. When I walk into a place and I see there's no sale, I feel like I'm going to get a that I'm getting uh that the, the person who owns that store, even I'm not even intending to buy anything, I'm just standing in the store looking around, and there's nothing on sale and I feel like that person's got their foot on my neck. Like, where's the sale? Where's the sale table? I don't even want anything in here, but I want to, you know, if I was going to buy something, it would only be the sale table, And it's just like, yeah. So all by way of saying, when I hire a laborer to do some job that I don't want to do, the last thing I'm going to do is sit and try and best that person. Right. You know, they're like working some job for me and And I'm going to try and like put my foot on them one more time, like make them feel ashamed, put it, figure out what the lowest possible price that they'll do that. But But I
0: I totally agree with you. But how do you know that they're not expecting you to do that? And so of
1: course they are. But why wouldn't they be pleasantly surprised that I didn't? You think they're going to go home and cry that I didn't chop them down? Like if they say I'm going to do it for 75 bucks and that seems reasonable to me. I'll pay it. What what do I care if 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 I could have gotten them to 60? Right. If they say I'll do it for 150 bucks and I think it's worth 75, I'll say no thanks. I'll go to the next guy who will do it for 75. You're just saying life you know, is too
0: life is too short to sweat these kind of details. That's what I hear you saying.
1: Not just that life is too short, Dan, but that it's a moral imperative. You'd have to do it for your own for your own mental health. To 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 sit and negotiate with somebody at that level, I think personally, is is to be uh, is to be focused on the wrong things in life, and to be um, to be gratifying yourself at the expense of other people. And you know, I remember sitting at my I, I had a job years and years and years ago, and I, I was new at the job. And I was a security person and I was – my job at that moment was to watch the back door. The back door was open. People were loading in and out and I was stationed there. And so – and I also got a shift meal every time I worked. So I went and I got my shift hamburger and I sat by the door and ate my hamburger. And the owner of the business came through and saw me eating my hamburger while watching the back door. And he said, did you clock out to eat your shift meal? And I said, uh, no. And he started screaming at me that I was ripping him off, eating my shift meal, even though I was doing the job, I was watching the back door. That was, I would have been doing it whether I was eating or not. And he made me go and clock out for the 15 minutes it took me to eat my hamburger and then clock back in. Well, I was making $6 an hour. And so... You know, what did he save? A dollar? And what did he lose? Like, my loyalty forever? Right. And also the energy of screaming at me and the respect of everyone who was standing around watching him. But to him, that was necessary. It was necessary for him to guard against uh, guard against theft and guard against the kind of like small graft that comes into a place like that where people say, "Oh well, you know, I'm going to put an extra maraschino cherry in my Shirley Temple because I <laughs> because I I work here, you know. I'm going to take an extra shift drink or I'm going to sneak a little bit of this or that." and it's like yeah you can lose a ton of money at a business if your staff are giving away free meals to their friends all afternoon you know if the person working at your store is giving away free food to other people or if they're just straight up taking money out of the till but what business what money are you losing if your if your employee puts an extra maraschino cherry right or or has a shift meal while they're on the clock. Like you're losing nothing in the grand scheme of things. What, what, you know, what amount of money is Verizon losing? If they let me out of my contract two months early, they're losing nothing, you know, an insignificant amount of money, but that's not considered business. That's not good business. And that, that business as though it is a sacred calling, as though it is a religion in and of itself and being good at business and being bad at business. Um, the better you are at business, I think the less moral you have to be or the less good, not even moral, but just good, good to other people, good to yourself. So I, not only have I given up haggling, like I'm gradually giving up, I'm giving up sales and I'm giving them up as a larger component of just giving up buying stuff.
0: Well, that like, I like that, but what do you mean giving up sales?
1: When I go into the grocery store now and they have six different kinds of milk and this one's on sale and that one is, you know, buy one, get one off. And this one is if you're a member of the grocery store loyalty brand group, then this, you know, then that and anymore. I just, I know the milk I'm going to get and I walk in, I get it and I don't. And, and again, it isn't that it isn't because I have so much money that I don't have to worry about price. It isn't that at all. It's that in the grand scheme of things, when you're driving down the highway, you can choose to switch lanes 25 times to get down the road or you can just stay in your fucking lane. And if you watch the way cars travel, you'll find that 99% of the time if you just stay in your lane, you're going to get there the same or faster than the guy that's switching lanes 25 times. And maybe if you think you're a genius and you're surfing the the fast lanes, and you know that over here near this exit, the the right lane is going fast, and then you can pop over into the left lane and go fast. Maybe you're going to get where you're going five minutes earlier than the guy that's just in his lane. And congratulations to you, except you probably cut off five people. You caused five minor traffic jams behind you in your wake. Um, you risked a couple accidents. And you got there five minutes earlier, and again, it's like you beat everybody, you beat everybody champion, but you know you were sweating and gritting your teeth and swearing at cars the entire time, and it's a it's just not healthy. so when I walk into the into the grocery store, it's not like I'm money bags, and I'm like, I don't care if I spend a hundred or a thousand at the grocery store I just get the I just get the good stuff it's not you know it's not that. It's that I I buy five things at the grocery. I know what they are. I walk in. I'm not bamboozled by the signs that say that this one is, you know, that I'm going to get some incredible deal on a thing that costs $3. It's like, you know, save the deal for the next guy. And when I go up to the grocery, when I go up to the counter and they're like, are you playing our Monopoly game? And they hand me five Monopoly pieces to their loyalty game. You don't, you
0: don't like being sold to. It sounds like you don't like that pro that process.
1: No. I mean, if somebody comes to me and if I'm, if I'm standing there and I don't know what to buy, I love somebody coming and telling me about the things. I don't like being emotionally manipulated to think that the, uh, to think that a good price is what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for a good price. I'm looking for milk and making that, making the, that uh, the mistake of not seeing the distinction. Like if you're looking for milk, the looking for a good price is a different, it's a whole different uh, pursuit. I mean, and over the years I've spent, I used to go to the grocery store and I walk around the grocery store for two and a half hours and I'd walk out without having bought anything because I was so, uh, I was so consumed with price consciousness and, and comparison shopping. I would sit and look at the toilet paper rolls and I would say, well, this one's got a thousand sheets, but they're two ply and it's four ninety nine, but it's, off with the coupon, and this one's got 1500 sheets, but they're one ply and you know, and I would sit and there's what is there 15 kinds of toilet paper. And I would do that little math about each of them and walk back and forth and really, really, really need to find the best deal. And what that causes you to do is it causes you to buy Scott toilet paper. Right. Which is like wiping your butt with a newspaper. With <laughs> wiping your butt with a with a, <laughs> a shitty newspaper, with a prison newspaper. Oh my god. And the people that buy Scott toilet paper are making a decision based on the one thing. Like this is a good this is the good deal toilet paper. And it's not a good deal. It's the worst deal in the world because you walk around all day Thinking the next time I go poop, it's going to be a miserable experience just like it was the last time because I'm wiping my bottom with prison newspaper. So what? where's the deal there? You know? So no, I don't, I mean, I, I don't mind being sold to if somebody's got something good that they want to sell that I have never heard of, but I don't, nobody needs to sell me milk. I'm, I'm already there. I'm there to buy milk and, and the, you know, the, the signs with the exclamation points and the percentage sign, they're just there to, to, to screw me up, make me walk out of there feeling like feeling gross, feeling either that I, that I got milk that was too expensive, which it wasn't. Or that, or the other thing which we don't think of as screwing us up, but what really does, which is walking out of there going, yeah, I got the last milk for cheap and the next guy is going to have to buy the expensive milk because I got the last one. Or, you know, I walked out of there spending less money for better stuff than everybody else and they're dumb and I'm smart. We just don't need, you just don't need to cultivate that in yourself, you know?
0: Well, I understand. And what you're, what it sounds like you're focusing on is the betterment of humanity through the avoidance of these sort of, to use the Buddhist term, sort of a hindrance, the craving of getting something and the immediate dissatisfaction that you feel five minutes after buying that thing.
1: Yeah, not even humanity, just, you know, I, I guess humanity in the sense that if I'm not bringing that craziness into my exchanges and then, and uh, uh, that that helps the next person have one fewer encounter with somebody that's, that's being crazy and that somehow ultimately that would, but you know, the butterfly effect somewhere down the line, somebody probably, somebody wouldn't end up killing their spouse that day. Um, but I, I'm definitely feeling a a larger and larger f- like feeling of contraction, and it isn't it isn't uh, a desire to be a hermit, but it's a feeling of disconnecting from the pollution that's in our culture right now, the pollution of and it, and it's it it's not political. It's the pollution that's in our in the sort of greedy smallness that's driving uh, all of our transactions now, emotional, social, I'm talking about, you know, large, larger scale as well as interpersonal. And just, I mean, this whole
0: attitude fits in really well with you taking a step back from social media and stuff too, I think.
1: Yeah. Big time, big time. A, new, no, a no? new,
0: like a new perspective for you.
1: I snuck on Twitter the other day. I was reading some stuff. I didn't go, I didn't go five uh, scrolls before there was somebody on there, like taking a not a pot shot at me, but just like a small. What did they sort what of did they say? Smug superior. Um, they said. I think when uh John and you know and it's they're adding me so they want me to see it I think when John and Merlin talk about the radical liberal it's a straw man because there is no because there are no radical liberals or something or you know like not they didn't say that there are no radical liberals but just like it they're they're making a they're they were trying to make the argument that Merlin and I are sitting, pitching or shooting arrows at a caricature of the radical progressive that doesn't actually exist except as a target for our sort of, uh, angry, middle-aged liberal slurs. Yeah. And it's like, what, you just out there trying to start a fight with me I mean, are you communicating that to your friends? Are, your, is that, are you trying to start, start a conversation with your Twitter followers who all listen to pot, the same podcasts? And you're like, here's an interesting thought I had. Why don't we all, why don't you, my 400 friends and I, sit and chat about the idea of, um, you know, about this particular idea? Or are you just, did you just have an idea that you wanted me to hear about how I'm failing about how you disagree with my opinion? And I mean, and I've seen this guy's Twitter follow or Twitter account before. I know he's a fan. I know he He's been a fan of the program for a long time. So he just wants to start an argument with me, or he just wants to kind of knock me a little bit uh, because he had an idea. And, the two favorite tropes that that uh, the college students throw out are straw man and ad hominem, right? Those are the, the two that they learn. And everything that comes across their bow that they want to sort of intellectually dispute, they call straw man or ad hominem, right? And there are a lot of other forms of argument. There are a lot of other ways to engage with somebody in a discussion of ideas and to throw that kind of like little college level, you know, like sophomore level shot across somebody's bow when you're trying to engage them in a conversation about a night, about a very broad idea or a very broad critique of, of like a whole, a whole notion of how you're engaging. It just feels like, is that what, That is what Twitter is now to me. I go on there and it's just a, it's just a little while before somebody says, "Um, excuse me, but there are no such thing as birdie bros. (laughs) It's like, I'm out. I'm out.
0: Right. It doesn't. Um, And there's not enough good stuff going on to make you, to make you say, you know what I'll deal. And this, this, I feel like recently happened for me and for a few other people. It used, I used to feel that there's enough good going on there on Twitter mm-hmm. that for the for the idiots that are out there, I'll just deal with them because I'm getting a lot out of the other interactions. I'm getting a lot out of the other stuff that's there on Twitter. And then something changed, and that kind of wasn't true anymore. That People
1: aren't funny. They're not funny anymore. Or
0: they're funny in a way that... That's Well, it's not funny, but they think they're being funny in a way that is somehow, it's more negative than positive. And it's easier, you know, I kind of feel like what I did is I started treating Twitter, for the most part, as kind of a one-way thing. Like, here's a place I can go to share something that maybe I worked hard on or that I found that I thought was interesting or funny as opposed to a way to try to have conversations with people. I think Twitter can be a nice gateway to having a conversation with somebody else off of Twitter, but trying to do anything meaningful on Twitter other than here's a cool thing I made or found or saw that I want to share with you guys. Anything beyond that, even just asking simple questions, it's inevitable. Um, If you ask a question, you're going to get some people who are trying to answer it, but you'll get a lot of people who, who are essentially saying, you're doing it wrong. You're asking the wrong question, or, you know, there's something flawed about the fact that you're seeking an answer to this kind of question. And I don't know. I just, I feel like something has really changed, especially over the last year, but I feel like grad more gradually over the year before that too, where I I just kind of... I miss I miss the old kind of interaction. I miss what Twitter used to be. But I don't know. I I'm with you though. Generally speaking, I just don't think there's very much there to make it compelling. I haven't left it. I'm still there. I still do stuff there, but it's not that I used to think of it almost like a really fun short almost like email. I almost thought of it like email from a whole bunch of people that are, that are all pretty cool. And I would look at email and then I would look at Twitter and there were a whole bunch of people there saying, Hey, you know, look at this neat thing. And Dan, what did you do here? And I would, you know, and I would share something and people would share back and it was fun. And now it just seems like you can't, you can do no right there. Well,
1: and a lot of the fun people are doing the same thing you're doing, which is they're only going on there as a one-way conversation posting and they feel obligated. Uh, now it's, it's like they feel obligated to be serious all the time. Like the, the playfulness, the people, you know, going on there to make a joke. Like when's the last time Hodgman just went on Twitter and made a joke? He hasn't done it in a year or longer. He just posts things there that he wants to sell you. And for a long time after no one else was, no one else I knew was on there just putting like their random thoughts, I still used it as a place to go put my random thoughts. I would tweet 10 times a day, just like, here's a blink. Here's a thought. Here's a thought. And that's what it used to be. People just throwing stuff out there. Well, you remember what it was like. I, I remember the first time I went on, I was tweeting about something, you know, I'm at the, I'm in line at the DMV and guy in front of me has a funny haircut and I tweeted for a little while. And then I went and checked Twitter and there were a bunch of people saying, um, maybe you haven't looked at the news today, but your Twitter, your tweets are really inappropriate. Yeah. And it was like, Whoa. And so you go look at the news and you're like, oh shit, there's been a mass shooting or something. Right. And I know how it is because if you're reading your Twitter feed and everybody in there is saying, I mourn the loss of uh, the victims of this latest shooting. And then someone says, I'm at the DMV and this guy's got a funny haircut. It's jarring, right? It seems, um, It seems like a... Like that person is being insensitive, except we all know that no one would do that if they knew what was going on, right? There And, and so somehow there was that initial disconnect of not realizing that that person doesn't need to be chastised. They're going to, you know, they're going to figure out soon enough what's going on and they're going to, they're going to adjust their tone accordingly. They don't need five tweets from people saying what you're doing is really insensitive because it isn't, it's clear what's happening. And I understand why, 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 um, affected people that way because you're scrolling and it is jarring, but they're not thinking about, they're not thinking to themselves. They're not doing the extra second of reflection. They're just ejaculating the first thought that comes into their head. They're tweeting at a person. And that was the first time where I felt like that's kind of ugly. Like it's a bad day. And there was a, you know, there was some shooting, but I was oblivious to it. I'm sorry that, that, uh, uh, and I'm, and I'm truly sorry that I was oblivious to it, but you know, to yell at me is to, is to uh, on your own part, not be, uh, on your own part to not be responsible and to not respect the limitations of this medium. We're not all sitting, checking our Twitter feed every 30 seconds. Some of us are out in the world, you know, and to respect the medium is to give people a break.
0: Well, and there's another, there's another thing. And that is if you are, if you are dumb enough, a horrible enough human being to post Something that isn't relevant to whatever world event has happened just now, whether because you don't know it or because most likely or because you choose not to. You, you're also a bad person for not knowing about it. Like, how could you not know about that? How could you be so out of touch and yet dare to show your face around here in this community of people who are all in touch? with everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's the flip side of this. It's sort of the assumption that I see a lot of the time that people make that everybody else uh is on the same page as them or or is looking at the same thing. So so let's say that um let's say that there are some news breaks and someone later will say, Oh, I can't believe this. This is just nuts. But there's no link. We don't know what they're reading. Oh, right. You know right. what I'm saying? We have no idea what's on their screen, but they're tweeting and the way that they're doing it is to suggest that their finger is on the pulse of the planet. They don't need to specify what they're talking about. And if you don't know what they're already talking about, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't really be here because everyone else, I'm only really talking to people that, that know. And, and if that tweet's confusing to you, guess what? You're really out of touch and it's not for you dude it's not for you then it's just not for you uh it's for the people who know what's going on i really don't like that kind of attitude uh and i see that more and more and more and instead of actually provide maybe i want to know what what are they what document are they reading that is outrageous maybe i want to be outraged too so give me uh, obviously you're reading something you're looking at something drop the link in your twitter Post. You know what I'm saying? In the put it in the tweet. Share if you're going to say something, you have to. I'll use one of your favorite terms, John. You have to add value to that thing that you're saying. Don't just make a comment about something, and even go a step further and and educate and share. If you're really going to be uh, uh, such a such an in the know uh, Twitter citizen, twitizen, then. You know, share that with me. Share the thing that you're so outraged about or so happy about. You know, like, this game, you guys, like, that doesn't help me. What game are you watching? And shouldn't your tweets mean something? Shouldn't they be, in and of themselves, have some kind of standalone value? If you were to take it out of the uh, out of the context of when exactly that was posted, Like, of course, a tweet about something three years ago might not be as relevant if it's news-focused, but at least put it into context. Oh, my God, this game! Exclamation point. What game? In a year, you're not going to know what that tweet was unless you were to, what, look at when it was posted, look at the date of it, and then go back and say, oh, right, what game was being played at 7.04 p.m. Central Time on, you know, April 27th? That's not really valuable. There's no value being added. And people don't care. John, we're we're no one cares what we think. They, this is what they want. They want a, a a meaningless stream of tweets that are generally negative, usually provocative, and rarely helpful. That's what that's what Twitter wants. Speak. Only if it improves upon the silence, Gandhi said. <laughs> John, our second sponsor is Squarespace.
1: Yeah. You, you, Squarespace. You've been spending
0: all all your time using Squarespace recently, just launching sites, launching new sites.
1: Squarespace has been a good friend to us.
0: They've they've long time agree? yes a long time supporter of of this show and other programs that you and I have both done and it's because they're good they're really just good they have a great product that I when I was first starting out like with my own company starting to 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 make my way in the world a big part of what I did was like building websites and I was one of those few people who I was decent enough at design and pretty good at code. So that you could hire me or I could find another designer to do an, an actual good design. And you'd pay us like tens of thousands of dollars and we'd work for like six months and build you a website. And if Squarespace had existed back then, I we would, ne- I would never have had a job. Nothing would ever <laughs> happen mm-hmm. because what they do all of this and it winds up being like 10 bucks. And it's it's kind of amazing what they've been able to build into this service. They've got e-commerce. You can put your album up on there, you you know, and host your music. You can do podcasting with it. You can put a photo gallery up there. You can have it be like a, a landing page, wonderful templates that you don't have to know any HTML or CSS. And I know a lot of people who are what I would put in the category of non-computer people, people who just, they know their password and that's about it. And they're able to go in and create a website in five minutes and register a domain and do and create a logo because Gorespace has that built into like they let you do everything and it's uh it's just super easy to use. The domains is their big thing. You can go and, and register a domain with them directly now. You've always been able to get one like for free if you registered a site for a year. But now you just go there and and, and get a domain. They make it super easy. Hmm. And so they have a free trial. You go to squarespace.com and when you're there you use the offer code Roadwork, one word. And you will get 10% off your first purchase. And it will support uh, this program that John and I uh, worked so hard to put out for you. So thanks very much to our longtime sponsor, friend, and uh, and kind company, Squarespace.com. Go check them out. Promo code ROADWORK for 10%
1: off. When when Idiocracy first came out, it was very easy to to say, oh, you know... It's already happening. And as the years have gone by, it has become even easier, I think, and lazy maybe, to, to say idiocracy is being made real all around us. Um, and in recent months, it has felt terrifyingly prescient that in actual fact, these things that seemed even a few short years ago, like, um, pretty gross exaggerations of a thing that we could all see had a grain of truth to it. Uh, it seems more and more like that isn't even a gross exaggeration. Like the, the reality of it is we're only a few years away from putting energy drinks on plants. But I think the I think the danger of the um, of the sort of idiocracy syndrome is that it allows us it, it it flatters each one of us that we are not part of idiocracy that we are the ones who can point at idiocracy and then uh, as a result are some are, are above it. And the thing about Twitter was that in the early days, it felt like a fairly highbrow medium. It was voluntary. It was done purely for comedy and for, you know, even at the beginning, barely even news, just diversion and sport. Um, and as time went on, it became more and more newsy. Right. But what what happened was, as more and more people got on there, the standard declined. And for a uh, for a long middle period, Twitter was a middle brow place. Right. That everybody on there was educated, and they all had. You know, they all had jobs that uh that had them in touch with a computer or with a smartphone. And that that large mass of people, the the middle brow, they all love to be flattered that they are part of the smart gang and they get the references and they like the same films, but they're not contributing as much. Um because that's not their game, right? They are, um, they're the audience, not the makers. And this was the thing in that middle period of Twitter that we all started to lament that early, that early version of social media where people who weren't makers of things suddenly because they could felt empowered to start contributing as though they were makers of things, as though their comment on, somebody's art was in and of itself art or was part of the art or the experience of art that their opinion or their consumption of the, of the thing was made them a player. And that was a, that was a period, that was that large middle period of Twitter where it was like, well, there's a lot of great stuff on here, but it's also a little weird. Like who does this person think they are kind of, intruding, like you'll be having a conversation with somebody on Twitter that you knew, and then some random swings in and in there trying to be funny. And it's like, what, who are you? Why are you here? And it isn't a case of elitism per se. It's a case of there are people that make things and that are funny for a living or that are creators. And, and, and you join that group by virtue of the, of your work. And not by virtue simply of your desire to be a member of that group. Like there are a lot of people who want to be a member of that group. You don't just get to decide, like, go do your work, make things. And if they're good, people will find them and then you'll be a member of that group. You don't get, there's no back door to it just because you're watching it on a medium that allows you to comment you don't get to decide if you're if you're as smart and funny as you think you are and then as time went on and the medium got more and more popular and there were just millions and millions of people on there inevitably the the lowest common denominator sets the tone because they're capable of just flooding the airwaves and what's sad is that that flood cauterizes in such a way that the creators no longer feel like they can push back the wave. You know, for a long time, Patton Oswald sat there and just took on all comers and continued to be funny, continued to be poignant and continued to push back against people that were lobbing accusations at him of, um, you know, just all, all these gross accusations. And you saw for a long time comedians saying it's comedy for Christ's sake, and people saying it's not com, you know, comedians never punch down. It's like, what are you talking about? Who made that rule? And who are you to say that to Patton Oswald? Mm-hmm. what the rules of comedy are? Random person? And the problem with it is that you say things, you know, that you'll get a thing like that. Comedy doesn't punch down and it makes you sound smart. It makes you sound like, you know, what comedy is. It makes you sound like you're not only Patton Oswalt's equal, but that you're in some kind of role where it's your job to, to chastise and guide Patton Oswalt in the pursuit of his own career. And it, fl- so it flatters you that you are, that you're a member, that you're smart, that you're not just some guy sitting in it in front of his smartphone, desperately trying to get Patton Oswald's attention. No, no, no. Now you're a celebrity in your own right and celebrities or whatever artists, makers weren't strong enough, weren't together enough. I didn't feel strong enough past a certain point to keep pushing back and saying, what, how the fuck do you think you can talk to me like this about a thing? Who are you? Show me your advanced degrees. Show me your movie. You wrote your albums that you put together that you can weigh in as a, as not just as a critic, but as though you're a peer, and talk to me in a way that a peer never would, never would dare. Wouldn't do because that's not how peers talk to one another. And so it's the idiocracy that's in each of us, I think. I look at myself now, and, and, and this is this relationship to milk on sale and haggling with day laborers. And I see the idiocracy in that that's in me that I would follow a 50%, a, a chain of 50% off signs that walked me right into a meat grinder. Like that's how idiocracy happens. Not because we elect a uh, a reality star to the presidency of the United States, but because each one of us independently decides that what matters is, a, is something that doesn't matter. Each one of us decides that in this situation, I'm going to stop putting funny things on the internet because there are too many dummies. And so then, the all that's left on there is the dummies, <laughs> and the and all that's left on there is the dummies who have all convinced themselves that they're the smarts. And there's no smarts left on there, so they must be the smarts. <laughs> and little by little, right? It did. for real. Yeah. And the, and the smarts just get more and more tired and, and more and more isolated. And then the hoi polloi, the mass, is just arguing with each other. Nothing is concluded. Nothing is built. There's just a lot of screaming back and forth about who's right and who's wrong at the lowest possible level of argument. Everybody's a victim all the time everybody's a hero all the time mm-hmm. and the level of discourse is just is just at the level of just ants screaming <laughs> nobody respects uh nobody respects authority and i don't mean that in the old fast or in the sense that causes your hackles to raise like respect authority like the cops i mean there are authorities about things archaeologists know more about dinosaurs than you do, unless you're an archaeologist. (laughs) That person is an authority on dinosaurs. And if someone writes poetry, they are an authority of language better than you. They know what words mean better than you, unless you are also a word professional, like not somebody that writes copy for a, for a company but somebody who thinks about words all the time, they know what words are. They don't use them accidentally. You know, they don't use them unintentionally and are authorities, there are authorities, but we don't respect them anymore. We don't allow that. Patton Oswald knows more about comedy than you do. Knows right. more about what's funny. We don't allow that. Well, and,
0: but that's, that's what Twitter's done. It's made the, it's the great equalizer. It's brought, well not and, just
1: Twitter. I mean, you know, social media in social general. Social media
0: in general has brought that level down to now everybody's accessible. Everybody's on the same playing field. You can be a regular old person who has something funny to say on Twitter. And now you've got, you know, 10 million followers and, you know, and, and, and now you got some kind of uh, sponsorship or something to, you know, support your YouTube videos. And that's that's the way it works now. Everyone's unequal.
1: So pers- personally, that's I watch. It's not bad. It's not bad, but. It is bad, Dan. It's absolutely bad. Um, it is caustic. You know, it is um, it is dragging us down so fast, so fast. The gains we've made over hundreds of years of building up what effectively is like a a, a tower of culture is being washed away, and and just turned back to sand, basically turned back to the sand of a, of a screaming horde. Um, and, and I've watched very, very talented people gradually surrender and say, this isn't, it's not just that Twitter isn't my medium anymore, but I don't know what to do now. I don't know where, I don't know where I belong. And I've watched a lot of smart people decide that, they don't want to be left out or that their job is also to be constantly righteous. That if you're, you know, that it isn't just when there are instances of mass shootings, uh, but that every minute of every day is effectively a mass shooting. And every single person doesn't just have to be aware of it, but has to take the same, um, either like, like heightened aggravation about it or in between mass shootings, there's this kind of like cynical, um, smug certitude. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, I don't the, the, uh, that terrible scene in idiocracy and it's, you know, it's the, 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 the ugly side of idiocracy. And the ugly side of this conversation is that it implies these ugly things. It implies eugenics. It implies um, it implies kind of a, a different kind of engineering. And I don't, I don't have a solution. I look at, I look at us historically, the human race, even just. Um, even just Europe in the last 2,000 years, which is what I mostly know about. Right. And you see periods of hundreds and hundreds of years where there's a a massive contraction. Science is no longer uh, important to people and gradually um, technologies are lost. Um, Understanding of the natural world is lost. Uh, And then there will be, a generation that kind of rediscovers the, um, the science of prior prior ages and they rediscover the poets, they rediscover the mathematicians of hundreds and hundreds of years prior. And there's a little Renaissance. And then there's another, another age when, uh, it all falls apart again. And so it's, it's disturbing to think that we're at the dawn of that kind of age. You know, we, we still don't know how the pyramids were built. Right. I mean, one of the things that characterized or the thing that characterized the, what we call the Renaissance in Italy in the 1400s was that they rediscovered the art of the Romans Hmm. and of the Greeks, which was 1400 years old at the time and had been lost that whole time. If you look at the artwork of the 900s or the 1200s, like we had even lost the technology of perspective and those things were rediscovered. Uh, The architecture of the Greeks and the statuary and the plays and the culture of the Greeks were, I mean, when we rediscovered them in the 1400s, they seemed like they were from outer space. So I'm not sitting here saying that the solution is anything. I'm sitting here saying, I can't believe that it could be happening so fast that we could be standing. There's no, there's no bubonic plague. There's no, um, there's no, I mean, I guess, I guess what it is is, the barbarians invaded Rome and burned it to the ground, sacked it, knocked it over. And maybe that's what's happening now. The mm. barbarians are. They're at, at the the, they're at the gate, right? The barbarians are us.